Once upon a time. In a land far away. I'm Katrina. And I'm Jeff. And welcome to the Fairy Tellers Podcast. Myth, legend, folklore, fable. We explore what they say about cultures then and now. Grab a hot cup of cocoa and a comfy seat. While we retell you a thing. Welcome to the Fairy Tellers Podcast. We're happy to have you back with us. And we have another very exciting topic that we're going to be talking about. Jeff, this was this episode was your idea. Yes. That you came up with. Yes, it was. Would you like to tell us why you came up with this idea? I came up with this great idea to talk about Mulan because the movie was going to be coming out on March 27th. And I was like, oh, that would be a perfect timing to do this episode in March. And it's been on our calendar for months. Also, I'm just a huge fan, yeah. as anyone who's listened to the podcast before may know, of the Mulan Disney movie. So I was like super excited for it. And then the coronavirus happened and everything got pushed back. All movies coming out, sporting events canceled. But you know what? I figured it still worked out because to replace that hole in your heart, just like the hole in mine, where the new Mulan movie should be is this podcast episode talking all about Mulan and various different versions. Yep. We're going to be filling in that hole in your heart for Mulan by talking about the ballad of Mulan is where the journey will start. Yeah. Right? So most of the versions of this, you know, story legend of Mulan trace their way back to the ballad of Mulan. That's the oldest, like, existing recorded version of this tale that we have. But like most things in the fairy tale and folklore realm, it goes back a lot further than that. And I'm, like, kind of proud of myself, but also nervous because I actually did research for this episode. As you well know, Katrina, I mostly just show up and make jokes. So this is more your (laughs) realm. But I got super into it. I even like messaged Katrina. I was like, what have you done to me? I'm reading somebody's like 145 page thesis on 12 different versions of Mulan. But it was super interesting. So no, I'm, th- I'm glad because then you shared resources with me. So then I could dork out on it. Yeah. That's and we'll, we, I found some really good stuff. So if you want to know more about Mulan, I know a couple of good books and articles that you can read. So here we go with the Ballad of Mulan. And I'll start off again. Just another minor delay that this might be a little weird because... This poem is actually pretty short, so there's not a lot to like summarize. It's going to be almost just translating it in my own words, basically, but um, we'll see how this goes. So this story starts with Mulan, who is sitting in the doorway, and she is weaving on a loom. And then suddenly we don't hear the sound of the loom anymore. All we hear is heavy sighs from Mulan. And someone asks, like, hey... What are you thinking? Who's the object of your love? Who are you thinking about that's making you sigh like that? And she's like, you know, she was just preoccupied with her thoughts. She's like, you know what? There's no one I'm in love with. No man occupying my thoughts. But last night as I was walking through the town, I saw 12 summons posted up all over town that the Khan is mobilizing troops. And on these 12 different copies, there are lists of men who have been summoned to fight in the army. And on every one of those copies is my father's name. It's like, my father has no grown son. I just have a younger brother. So there's no one else that can fight except for my father. But I want to buy a saddle and a horse, and I'm going to take my father's place and join the army. So that's what she did. She got up. She went to the Eastern Market, 
She bought a horse, went to the Western market and bought a saddle, went to the Southern market, bought a bridle, and then to the Northern market to buy a whip. And it was at this point that I thought that someone who can make like an all-in-one, one-stop horse equipment shop in this town is going to be rich (laughs) because they're not going to have to travel to all different sides of the city to get everything they need to get a horse. I'm glad that you see an investment opportunity. You're like, oh, How can we monetize this? Find a need, fill a need. That's what this town needs. So she gets all this stuff for a horse. And at dawn, she says goodbye to her parents. So that night, she rested at the Yellow River. But she couldn't hear her parents' voices calling her back home because the water of the Yellow River was flowing so loudly. And then at dawn the next day, she left the Yellow River and she rested at the top of the Black Mountain. So she couldn't hear her parents' voices over the sounds of the the horses of the army. And so she walked, you know, hundreds and thousands of miles, joined in the thick of the battle, crossing mountain passes, battling the winds that were going down, sleeping on in freezing nights in in iron armor. She fought over a hundred battles, leaving tons of people both on her side and the side that she was fighting dead. And then after 10 years, the bravest men of this army, including Mulan, came back. And so they went to the emperor, the Khan, who they call the son of heaven, who was seated on his throne. And they walked up the 12 steps and there he was rewarding them with tons of money. And he was throwing out titles and he asked Mulan what she, what she wanted. And she's, he offered her a position on his court, which would mean she would just be completely set for life. But she says, you know what? I don't want any of these boring political assignments. What I want is one good horse, the fastest horse that you have so I can ride back to my hometown, to my dear parents. And so when she rode that horse back to her parents, they heard her coming and they went out into the city and welcomed her back. And her little sister, hearing that her, her, uh, her older sister was coming, you know, good, got out Milan's old clothes and her best looking clothes and put them by the door for her to put on when she came in. The, her little brother started sharpening in the knives, getting ready to butcher pigs and sheep to have a big old <laughs> feast, which is like, that kid thinks like me. It's like anything to celebrate with a big old uh, feast I'm down with. Yeah, he's like, we're having a barbecue, right? That's what we're doing next. And so she comes through the gate. She goes back down to her old room and she takes off the armor and the clothes that she had worn dressed as a man for battle she puts on you know the old clothes that she used to wear and puts on makeup she goes to the window she does her hair and then outside she sees her friends from the army that had fought with her these past 10 years and they were completely flabbergasted because they had no idea that the whole time that they were fighting with this super brave ba warrior that she was a woman and they were like We marched together for 12 years and we had absolutely no clue that Mulan was a girl. And then at the end, she kind of uh, teases them with this little rhyme talking about, you know, it's like, well, it's like a boy rabbit kicks its feet wildly. A female hair has shifty eyes. But when the pair of these hairs run side by side, who can distinguish which is a male and which is a female? And she's kind of making the point that, you know, you may be able to tell the difference, but when we're fighting side by side in battle... Who can really tell the difference? Yeah. It's like, it doesn't matter. And that is the Ballad of Mulan. Very short. Yeah, very short. What stood out to you? So I guess what stood out to me was that the story is a lot like more simple and straightforward, actually, than 
kind of, which I mean is why it's short because there's not this kind of long drawn out thing about it. Yeah, there's not like a big long narrative with like twists and turns and stuff like that. It's like just a very simple story. Yeah, that she was like, oh, here's the problem. I see my like dad can't go and fight. So I'm going to like go out and I'm going to take his place. And then she does that for 10 years. And then what is also interesting to me is that when she gets home, she's or like when the war's over, she's basically just like, no, nope, I did the thing that I wanted to do. I wanted to protect my dad. Yeah. And now I'm going home. Like she had like she had no this isn't a story necessarily about a woman being like, like, no, I have a, every right to fight. Like, I'm going to defy these things as like a point. Right. Like that she like she didn't set out to make the point that like. Uh, for gender equality. Right. Yeah. All she wanted to do, one the only thing she like valued that was super important to her was to protect her father, to take his place in like the army to protect him. And when she was done with that, she was done with that. Yeah. And she's like, okay, it's over. Now I'm just gonna I'm going home. Like yeah. I totally. And I thought it was interesting, and you know, lots of the sources that I looked at bring up the fact too, it's like when she dresses as a man, it doesn't make that actually clear. And it never like explicitly states that she was dressed as a man until the very end when she goes back and puts on her old clothes and then all of her war buddies were, were surprised, which I thought was really interesting. So it's like, you can see where the bare bones, like if you were to give a summary of this story, you'd be like, oh yeah, that's totally like the Disney movie of Mulan. Like she goes into war in place of her dad. She comes back a hero the emperor offers her, you know, a, pl- a a place on her in the imperial court, and then she turns him down and decides to to go back to her family. It's like that's exactly what happens in the movie too, except there's a lot more stuff that was you know expanded on and and you know fleshed out yeah. obviously in the in the movie. But it's like it's totally the same thing, but it's yeah. also so different at the same time. Also, it sounds like what they who they were fighting, yeah, was. Oh, different. Like in this one, it actually doesn't say. Yeah, it's just like they, they, were, they went off and went fought. To, like fight. <laughs> yeah, which is interesting. It's like, oh, fair enough. And that's something that comes up you do in, a in a lot of the different versions. Like in, in the different versions, they're fighting different people. Like in this one, the Ballad of Mulan, it's just completely unclear. It doesn't matter. It's the fact that they're fighting whoever. She, the fact that she's in the army in place of her dad is the important thing. But in other versions, they're fighting like rebels within their own country, putting down insurgencies. There's another version where they're fighting like invading Turks. Oh, I was going to say that the way that it started out in the ballad of Mulan, where it's just like the the basic beginning one, it's kind of good that they didn't name it like a specific person that they're yeah. fighting because then it kind of does allow for the story to go through the different periods of time. Yeah. Like it 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 allows it to move because it's unspecific who they're fighting. Human nature, there's a lot of fighting. Yeah. Like, so all th- all throughout, like, the period of time, no matter in what region of the world, the history you're talking about, like, there's going to be, like, war and infighting and battles and stuff like that. And so, yeah, by not naming a specific person, it allows that story to slide up and down history right. 
and and still yeah it's like the same thing like in like american like hollywood movies like you know for a while like russia were always the bad guys but then like oh it wasn't good for russia to be bad guys anymore necessarily and then oh well you know now they're all terrorists what it was was it was like well yeah because it was like during the cold war in america they were like oh obviously we're gonna blame like the russians if there's a spy movie like that's who we're going to yeah and there was like a really good example there's like a movie in the 80s called red dawn where it was basically like russians invaded america and like americans fought back and they remade that movie like in the 2000s sometime and the bad guys in that were supposed to be china they actually filmed it had like chinese flags and all that but then they were like um, you know, movies are actually making a lot of money in China these days. So we need to go back through and change this to uh, uh, got to be some Asian country. Oh, North Korea. Let's do North Korea instead. You know, so it's like it's like that's just a perfect example of you don't want to pin down the enemy because they might be your friends that, that you're trying to sell your movie to in a few years time. Yeah, it just depends on like who you're fighting at what period of time. Yeah. So a big thing that comes up with this when you hear about Mulan and start going back to like, you want to hear like the original story or like the oldest story again, as with all things, there is no original version. Even this is not the original version. So really all the versions of Mulan, including the ballad of Mulan, most of the ones that exist trace back to the ballad of Mulan, but even the ballad of Mulan kind of traces back a little further to one that they called the ode of Mulan, which is like almost the same thing. And even more confusing, like lots of times you'll find the ballad of Mulan labeled as Ode of Mulan or even like Poem of Mulan, but there's supposedly an even older written record of this story that existed, but we don't have it anymore. No one has it, but there are books that are older than when the Ballad of Mulan was supposedly written or, you know, written down that reference a written version in another book that like doesn't exist anymore that we don't have any copies of that talk about having this story in it. Plus, I think one of the difficulties that like we have as English speakers is that uh, I think I read in one of the papers that you sent me that, that this wasn't even translated. Like one of the, I can't remember which one it was. I think it was the Ballad of Mulan. It wasn't even translated into English until 1881. Mm -hmm. So it's like, even if, somewhere online there is like a record of that kind of oldest ode of Mulan. Yeah. That doesn't necessarily mean that would we have access to it. I would have access. Yeah. But to I mean, it. Would, because it's like, yeah. Yeah. Well, the thing that I was saying too, is like, even, you know, like in Chinese or in whatever language, maybe in the area before what we would recognize now, like they're, they, they don't have a yeah. version of it that exists. They just have references to an older version. Um, and even then, you know, so the Ballad of Mulan, we never said, was recorded sometime in the 5th or 6th century. So it's like 400, 500 AD, which is crazy. But even in this early version, they don't attribute an author because they were just, this was kind of a project like has been done in other places, although long before it was being done in Europe, where they were having people like officials that worked for the government collecting these folk songs and folk stories. And that's what this was. It was a folk, a folk song that had been going around that they had collected and tried to preserve. So they think it might've been going on for a long time before then. Lots of people say that, you know, oh, Mulan, it's based on a true story, but it's probably classified more as a legend, if not just a straight up folktale, because they yeah. don't really have any proof that it is based on anyone real. There's lots of different 
places throughout China that claim to be the birthplace of the real Mulan. And actually, you know, they think that this story may not actually even be like a, you know, a Chinese story in the way that we think of Chinese today is like, you know, the Han Chinese that we think of today, because in the time that this was written, there were two kind of dynasties in China. There was the Northern Wei dynasty and then the Southern, and they were fighting between each other. And actually the Northern Wei dynasty was like unified by this pneumatic warring group that kind of came in from outside. They were called uh, the Bei, and they were the ones that were unified and ruling over this area. So really the government at the time was in the hands of foreign people rather than, you know, the people that were of that area. And of this, you know, nomadic warring group, their women were skilled horse riders and archers and warriors. And there were lots of stories and songs, like folk stories and folk tales and songs of these woman warriors. So that's where they're thinking that, you know, Mulan actually even comes from really, a, a if you trace it all the way back, which we can't do in any record, written record, but it probably goes back to even a non-Chinese yeah. origin, which That's I think really, is fascinating. What you were just talking about with uh, being like skilled writers, being nomads and stuff, you just reminded me of Mongolian people. They're known for, they're nomadic, or they used to be nomadic, and they're in that space between like China and yeah. Russia. And they're known for being nomadic and so they're all really skilled like horse riders because they have to be because that's how they move their themselves their group yeah. around is like, like horseback and so now i'm yeah which going back to like the disney movie and like the fight there's like the huns uh-huh. and so yeah it's like kind of that whole region of like mountainous cold horseback riding like right yeah and it's really interesting too when you compare it to is like saying that like this may this story may actually come from like this non-chinese origin that are that are from a group that are similar to they're not the huns or mongolians but this other nomadic group that's actually more similar to the people that they're fighting in the mulan movie than they are to actually like you know mulan and the emperor and another thing that they talk about too is like they call they use both the word emperor and khan as like the leader of the area that mulan is going to serve like she talks about how she's going like she's going to serve the khan which is like when you say khan you also think of you know like huns and mongolians and those people you don't that's not something you really think of as being chinese which is also interesting and you know the thing talking about horses and being skilled with horses when Mulan is making that transition from being, you know, in her like, you know, feminine, normal feminine space to being in like going into that masculine space. You know, in the Disney movie, she's like putting on armor, she's cutting her hair, she's wearing a sword. But in this, it's like she's going out and buying a horse so that she can go and join the army and buying the things that go along with being a horse. And that's the thing that signifies, you know, that transition of from feminine to masculine, which is also interesting because the very first thing we see Mulan doing in this story is she is sitting and she is weaving on a loom, which is like, yeah. Okay. First of all, fairy tale, like 100%. <laughs> everything is about weaving and textiles. And if you're a woman in a fairy tale story, you're going to be doing something like that. Which to me, like historically, the way civilizations have kind of like split up jobs, like job description. Uh-huh. It's always based on 
dividing up time and skills. And some people, I mean, obviously this is like still a subject that's like always like in great debate about what, what qualities are innate, what's nature versus nurture, what's cultural, what's our like environment, but kind of just the facts of biology is that if you have a uterus, you can have not, there's a lot that goes into making a baby, but people who have uteruses make babies traditionally um, (laughs) (laughs) because of biology. Hopefully I'm not saying anything that anyone's like scandalized by. And after you have a baby, the mom physically is the one who can do the most for that baby. I'm talking about breast milk. Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) And, And so like women spend a lot of time of like in their life. I'm like, you're menstruating, Mm -hmm. which causes, which makes like going on hunts and stuff just messier, like more problematic. Yeah. It's just more difficult. And when you, after you have a baby, you are a lot more homebound. Yeah, You're kind of like encumbered because you have this other little creature that, Completely creature, a li- another human that relies completely <laughs> on you for their, you know, sustenance and protection that you have to be worrying about. So it's like you don't want to take yourself into a dangerous situation because you're a two for one, you know, but also you're yeah. less likely to be able to defend yourself or do whatever because you're responsible for this other person. Yeah, because like if I'm hunting and I have my baby, like it's just it's just so much harder to do so like it makes sense to divide up like work things that women can do at home or even like in some traditions of like when women were menstruating they would have like a special area that they would be so to contain (laughs) some of the mess i'm just like that's just bodies um and what they would do usually with that time is kind of the more sit down crafting things whether it's like weaving baskets Make it like it it was just like, okay, I'm sitting, spending like, what do I do with this time? Especially like, okay, I just put this baby down for a nap. What can I do with my time that kind of progresses our family that like helps our life? And so like, it just makes sense globally that women did end up doing a lot more of these kind of like sit down home bound activities. Yeah, I've never heard it explained that way, but that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, that it's like just the the logic behind it. Cuz it's it's not necessarily oh women aren't as good at hunting because the, like men's eyes are better or men's legs are stronger or like whatever right. like no, because traditionally women would do the protecting of like their home if men were away, women were like taught and strong enough to like use weapons to fight off anybody who came into their space, yeah. kill any animals that might be trying to get close to their fire to steal their food or like whatever. So women could physically protect themselves at that home base, but it was just harder to move around yeah. when you're trying to corral a million kids. <laughs> and it's just like you said, just you know, speaking from experience, <laughs> there, there are jobs that need to be done. And you know, there are various factors that influence who does what job based on whatever it may be, age, you know, sex or gender or whatever. And some of those things are completely arbitrary, but then they do become associated with those 
whatever category, you know, it happened to kind of fall under. Yeah. Culture, because like stories that we tell, they enforce what we expect from each mm-hmm. other. Like we're saying, oh, this is a good example of a woman or this is right. a good example of a man. Yeah. And it enforces those things that we like expect, like the cultural expectations, especially gender expectations. Yeah. And so it is like when you're so stuff like that, themes like that do end up in the stories because now we're talking about even though a woman might be at home because it's like, oh, this just makes more logical sense for me to get this job taken care of here. What it turns into is just a perpetuating. Yeah, like a feedback loop. Which is totally applicable to this story, too, because that's kind of one of the things in the Ballad of Mulan. It's not a big deal about her being a woman and all this stuff. It's so much. It's about something else that we'll get to in a second. But through different versions, they make it more and more about like and you'll see by some of the titles of these like literary works that are based on this story becomes very much about like this is what a virtuous and, uh, you know, ideal woman is supposed to be. Which is kind of interesting. And going back to the weaving thing, I think you'll find this really fascinating because it goes totally with what you're saying. I found a quote from, I'm sure, what was a fascinating article called Textile Production and Gender Roles in China from 1000 to 1900 AD, which I want to point out, I didn't actually read that article. I found this quoted in another book, which is great and a lot more uh, fun and exciting to read, I'm sure, than this article was. But the quote which was by Francesca. That was pretty harsh. That was so harsh for the person who wrote that article. But, okay, I actually, when you hear this sentence, maybe it'll help you think that this is actually kind of a cool article because of the way that this woman writes. Who's her? By the way, her name is Francesca Bray. She wrote, Womanhood in early imperial China was defined by the making of cloth, with few rare exceptions. A weaver was by definition a woman, and a woman was defined as a weaver. So, like, one, that's like a greatly written sentence. But, but it goes on to say, you know, in this period in China, weaving was, like, inexorably tied to womanhood, femininity, which is why they started this story off that way. They wanted to start her off showing a woman doing the most womanly thing possible, it, you know, kind of in yeah. their minds. And another thing that I thought, and this is just totally, like, me imposing my own ideas on it but you know when we talk in other stories in in you know european folk tales and folklore and fairy tales the idea with weaving being tied to fate and how like we talk about you know the greek fates and there's the you know the norse satyr magic and all that stuff like throughout this story mulan is weaving her own fate she is making choices for herself that are guiding her life you know she is choosing to go and take her father's place in the army she is offered a position in the imperial court and she's choosing to return home to her family instead. And I was like, okay, this is probably not what was intended by the people that were telling this story back in the day. But the fact that it works still from that like yeah. European understanding like is kind of cool. And maybe there's something to it, but it you know, probably not. Yeah. Also with you talking about like a, a woman – by definition, was a weaver and a weaver was like yeah. a woman. I just want to throw in there the the term spinster. Oh. That we know, now it has like a negative connotation if you say somebody's a spinster. Yeah. 
it brings up this like idea of like some old lady angry sitting with a cat just being like i hate everybody and i'm old (laughs) but like originally like a spinster was just like any woman who was sitting and spinning like thread which basically could be any woman because they were like all Kind of just that was just kind of a regular chore to keep done because there was always yeah. uh, cloth and stuff that needed to be made, stuff that had to be produced. And so basically, and by that kind of definition, any woman in that period of time could be considered a spinster and a spinster could get together with their friends and all, all hang out. And it was just a group of spinsters. Yeah. So it's funny that it's like a weaver is like a woman and a woman is a weaver. My... My question that I'm pretty sure like you don't have the answer to is if there's like uh, an equivalent for men. Yeah, I don't know. In the Chinese, which I don't I don't think that there's like an equivalent where like a man is a blank and a blank is always like a man. Yeah. In like English. Yeah. The same way as like with spinster. Right. Which is this kind of also a side interesting topic of how like men for centuries have been seen as like what's normal. Uh-huh. And then like women are like a subsection of humanity, yeah. even though we're 50% of humanity. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and so like, it's just interesting. That's like, Oh no, a woman, a woman is defined by her job or her relationship to a family or her relationship to like a household. Yeah. But then men are like, no, it's just a guy. Yeah, and that's a great <laughs> segue into the next thing I want to talk about because, you know, we talked a little bit about how she's defying these gender stereotypes and even defying her family obligations by leaving and going off to war when, you know, that was not what was expected of a young woman considering the fact that everyone was so surprised when she, they found out that she was a woman. But supposedly, according to people much smarter than I am, which includes um, Landong, who wrote the book that I want to read the entire thing from cover to cover, which is called Mulan's Legend and Legacy in China and the United States. If I say anything smart throughout this entire podcast, it's probably because I stole it from this book. So there you go. Um, But they were talking about (laughs) in this book how at the time that this story was recorded and probably the time when it was being told, this wasn't about what we think of like the story of Mulan, especially the movie, this kind of like female empowerment feminist kind of a thing, like the, the defying gender stereotypes was like, is like a huge part of it from our viewpoint. And it's appealing to a a modern audience for, you know, lots of reasons. It's a big thing that's going on nowadays, but it wasn't really kind of the point back then. And actually when you get in and dig a little deeper, you realize that it's sort of like the opposite of that in many ways. But the real point of it was, about this complex intersection of the loyalties to the Khan and country and for her father and family, which is like you talking about her, her being defined by her relationship to her family. That really is kind of one of the things it's about, but they also say that it's like, was supposed to be more of a critique of the warring culture at the time. Like she was so upset that her father was supposed to be going into war and she had to go and do it. And this version they don't go into big passages talking about like how great of a fighter she was and how much she relished, you know, shedding blood and all that. It just talks about like very matter of fact, like she went off, she fought, they were in battles where lots of people died. It doesn't glorify the violence at all. It just is saying like, this is what happened. And when she gets back and is going to be rewarded for that, you know, it was like a big deal 
and makes it super clear that her loyalty is not to the state and to the country when she refuses that position. It says, no, I'm going from the emperor, from the emperor or the Khan. Because like if an emperor is telling you like, you are amazing, I need you to be my advisor. And she's like, no, yeah, that is that is a bigger deal than if you live in a, a time and a place when like it's very easy for me. Like if somebody was like, we want to give you a job promotion and maybe like, uh, no, yeah, like I don't want that. I don't need that. But if it's if it's like like a, an emperor saying, oh, you're really great at this. I want to give you this job. It's. It almost seems like it's less of a request and, yeah. and more of a like you're being voluntold exactly. that you need to <laughs> do something. Exactly. And, you know, they, they she never directly criticizes the con or anything like that. But it makes it very clear that her play, like she was being loyal to her family, which is also kind of complicated because it goes back to talking about how defying the generals weren't the point of the story. Um, because, you know, like it was super risky for her to go off and join the military. Like, obviously she could die in battle, um, legal consequences, which in the Disney movie they talk about, you know, she would be put to death for that, which it does not talk anywhere. And most of the versions that I saw, it doesn't mention that at all, but it does say legal consequences. The only version that I read about that included that kind of legal consequences of like, if you're caught pretend, if a woman's caught pretending to be a man in like the military or there was like another one. I th- want to say it was like school or something. If like that idea of like, Oh, you would be put to death if you were caught pretending to do that. The only time that it shows up is in a book from, I believe it was the 1970s called the woman warrior uh-huh. by Maxine Hong Kingston. Yeah. And yeah, so that kind of like legal ramification. And so I don't, yeah, it's like, oh, I don't know if it existed at the time. Yeah, was that a thing or just, you know, something to up the drama? Um, yeah. Yeah, and then... But still, going into war, there's like risks. Yeah, and they talk too, like specifically being a woman going into war, like being surrounded by men who are in these like violent situations all the time. They say, you know, the risk of like sexual violence was like, would be a real thing. That would be a very big concern. Yeah, considering like it still is. Yeah. Just like being a woman in the yeah, military. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, again, too, like at the very end of the story, she goes back to her very feminine role. She puts on her old clothes. She puts on makeup. And in the culture at the time, you know, as an unmarried woman, part of that being loyal to her father and her family would have been for her to get married, you know. And it also would have been seen as like important for those people for her to go back to her life as a daughter and become feminine again to kind of like balance out that like, you know, quote unquote transgression of defying the social norms. Yeah. What's, what's interesting about you saying this, it's making me think of how I I know I felt this way. And I heard that this was like a critique of the movie, um, the Disney cartoon version of Mulan that there was kind of a sense of disappointment and letdown for some people when Mulan did come back from battle and then she put on her dress and kind of went back to being the, like the daughter. Yeah. And they were kind of like, Oh, she's giving up like being that warrior woman. She's not like saying, Oh now, like I love you dad, but now I'm like the leader of like an army or whatever. She kind of goes back to 
the beginning. I mean, there was that kind of she because in the Disney movie, it was more about the like she wasn't good at traditional gender yeah. roles. As opposed to in this where you see her weaving and she, she is, yeah. is. Yeah, it is interesting. It's kind of, and again, it, it kind of does seem to me like in the spirit of this, in the sense that this was always just, it's not like, you know, she sings that song about, you know, reflection, which I think is a great song, but when will my reflection show who I am inside? Like she doesn't see herself as the made up, super pretty housewife woman, but she still sees herself as yeah. a woman and a daughter and part of that family. And that's, she has things that she wants to be, but being a man and being a soldier is not one of those things. Yeah, but like being an honorable person above all that, being a person who has high values yeah. is what's important. Yeah, exactly. So just kind of like, a, again, a summary of some of like historians and, and people's general conclusions about this legend is that it's probably from the nomadic life of some northern nomadic group in China, probably a folk story rather than a historical narrative as much as people want it to be a real thing. It may have taken different elements because, again, part of these these um, part of these nomadic groups, their culture was that the women would often be warriors. There were lots of stories about kind of woman warriors. So it may have come from real stories like that where they took different elements from different stories added other things from Chinese stories to create the character. Um, and then it was later recorded by like literate people and kind of polished a little bit, but their intent when they were writing these down was not to create a literary work, but to kind of like the brothers Grimm, I would say, and I don't know what much about their process exactly, but they were trying to write down the story as people were telling them, but make it in a way that makes sense because as like one solid narrative, because you know, different people would tell the story slightly differently. So there has to be some kind of changes just to make it gel as one thing. Yeah. There has to be some kind of editorial process where they say, we're taking out this element. We're leaving in this element. This one's crazy. This one's great. And really interestingly, and I think you brought up a really good point earlier, the fact that it is so simple and so bare bones made it really easy and kind of in some ways nonspecific, really easy for it to travel across culture and even just in China get adapted in so many different ways. And even, you know, now we obviously have versions that are from originating from the United States um, that are finding things about this story that are really, really interesting and important, you know, and, and even in, in China in earlier versions, like up until like the 16th century and beyond, you know, all from the fifth century when this was recorded, where they start exploring the idea of the gender roles more specifically Are you planning a road trip this year? Think of traveling down part of Route 66. Check out the Jackrabbit gift shop to take a picture on the rabbit that made it famous. Explore the petrified forest to marvel at its unique natural wonders. And when you get hungry, remember that you can stop into Mr. G's to split a pizza with your road tripping crew while you plan your next adventure. Mr. G's Pizza has barbecue chicken wings, toasted subs, cheesy breadsticks, and salads enough to satisfy every traveler. And when you're done and ready to get back on the road, make sure to check your car for Andy. You don't want to get 30 miles down the road and hear him screaming from the trunk for a bathroom break. Believe me. Get back in the kitchen, Andy. Let Mr. G's fuel your next adventure. 
So do we want to get into another version? I think so. Yeah. All right. So Katrina, you're going to retell slash real time translate line by line (laughs) the song of Mulan, which is also (laughs) super short. Yeah. So it is funny because again, like it's, it's super short. And so I'm like, if I just read it, am I plagiarized? (laughs) So it's like, it's, yeah, it's pretty much, I'm telling you everything included, not sparing any details because it's not that super long. (laughs) So this was a song, and this was actually uh, written down by a known composer, Wei Yunfu. Again, I always hope I'm saying things right. Yeah, I meant to make like a... I'm 100% uh, sure that I'm... I I meant to make a super, you know, uh, (laughs) catch-all CYA at the beginning is like, I don't speak Mandarin, I don't speak Cantonese, I have no idea how to pronounce anything, so I'm sure I'm pronouncing every single Chinese name completely wrong. So please forgive us. Please, 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 we're sorry. So this composer, he's not going to come back and fight me on how to pronounce his name since he uh, wrote this in about 750 (laughs) AD. So (laughs) he's he's not going to attack me. But he was the person who wrote this song. And that's kind of why it's so short is because it was meant to be played with music and just be a narrative um, song. So again, it starts off with Mulan is sighing while she's at a loom weaving. And somebody asks, why is your heart so sad? I wish that I knew the reason behind your sadness. And so she kind of composes herself and she replies, my father's been drafted into the army. He doesn't have strength. He can't join an expedition and march for 10,000 miles. His son is too young to take his father's place. His horse will stumble through the deep sands. The fierce winds could attack his skin. He's super old. He is sick. He's not going to make it. So she's just really concerned about his physical health. That's kind of the Uh main focus of her lament, which is a little bit different from the other one, that there's so much specifically about her decrepit father. So Mulan decides she will take her father's place. She feeds his horse. She takes her place among the soldiers. She removes all the silk clothes. She washes away her makeup. She rides her horse and reports for duty. So she's full of courage, and at dawn... She is there, like, with everybody doing what she's supposed to do at desk. She's right alongside of them. And she fights, and they end up fighting. It says she attacks Mount Yazi, which I think just means that the people they were attacking were the mountain. I don't think that she attacked a mountain. It's a song. It's artistic, people. Um... So, but it also says she captures the Quang, Kiang. I'm not sure. Kiang, maybe. I don't know who that is. Ki Kiang. So the general uh, declares victory, and now the soldiers can return home. So a much shorter span. Of, they don't specify a span of time. It basically is like she's there. Dusk, nightfall. Then they capture this guy. War is yeah. over. So in this one, really quick. So then she goes home, she greets her parents, but the joy that they feel at her returning kind of turns to sadness, and Mulan understands that it's because she 
now is looking so manly. And so she sets aside the manly garments. And then she sings to them that she's a hero um, or she was a hero, but now she's going to be a petite woman once again. And so all of the relatives come and congratulate her. And they say this daughter is as valuable as a son. But then her old comrades, kind of like in the last story, the people that she battled with, they come back to see her to kind of, oh, here's where they talk about 10 years. So sorry, guys, I lied. There <laughs> is. So her comrades come to kind of like reminisce about like those hardships that we had, but we're all brothers in arms together. And let's talk about the 10 years that we faced death together. But then they saw Mulan and they recognized her voice. But she looked like a woman now. <laughs> and so they <laughs> they didn't want to come near her because they were really confused. But then they they kind of wrap up by saying that if all the officials of the world could display the same kind of like virtues and strength as Mulan, then their fame would last throughout the ages. If all people could be as Mulan. Yeah. So that's going again. This is going more towards what you were talking about before of like holding her up as like the ideal woman, the ideal. Well, and it doesn't necessarily say as a woman, but it, no, but yeah. it does talk about loyalty and, like, and filial piety is the words that it uses, which is like the, the, yes, you know, respect for the family. Yeah. But also I want to point out that they do say that like if the officials of the world, so what they were saying is like, oh, we wish all men could be as yeah. great as Mulan. And that like, but now Mulan, because then the relatives were like, oh, the Mulan is like the, this daughter is now worth as much as a son is. Right. And so there's still that, that inequality of language where it's like at the same time that they're saying like, oh my goodness, you are so incredible. You're like worth as much as a man. But we wish all men were more like you <laughs> rather than you yeah, being Yeah, we wish an all official. men were... <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so there's like still that like uh Yeah, it's really that it's, kind of like struggle. It's really interesting. Again, 750 80. <laughs> right. Well, so. <laughs> what else did you notice specifically kind of about the differences between the stories? So this that one stuck out it seemed you? it was This one was a lot more it seemed focused on the the gender. Yeah. That was a bigger focus because like you had pointed out that there when she's like, oh, I got to get ready for war. She just like went and got a horse, all of its equipment. Yeah. And in this one, it talked a lot more about... Um, like taking off the silks, like, wiping off the makeup. Yeah, she took off her... Yeah, taking off makeup, like doing this. Um, and so there was a lot more about the... Like how she's going to physically change her appearance. And like putting aside all of the feminine things to go and do the masculine yeah. things. And then it really was very specific about like, she sings at the end. Like I was this like valiant hero. I was this strong person, but now I'm going to be a petite woman yeah. again. Yeah, totally. Another thing that I thought was really interesting is it doesn't mention hardly at all. Like the con or the emperor. Yeah. She doesn't go to the emperor at the end. It's just the general's like, yay, we won the war. It's, it's very streamlined like, cool. as far as like, she went to go and protect her father. And you pointed out during the telling of the story too, it's like, they kind of made everything a little more dramatic. And so kind of a little bit of backstory behind what this was, um, Wei Yanfu, who wrote this, 
wrote it during the Tang Dynasty, and it was like called. I don't know what it'd be called in Chinese, obviously, but it was like an imitative, imitative poem. So it was meant to imitate even like the composition of the Ballad of Mulan, but the way that it was written, everything like the poor, more polished writing style and stuff, gives it away as being clearly like a literary work, and it is assigned to a specific author. But it just shows too, like even though this is only a few hundred years later, kind of how values and things have changed. Again, it's like a different dynasty. But, you know, rather than there was a big point in the Ballad of Mulan about her being kind of torn between these two loyalties. And she ends up choosing the loyalty to her family over the loyalty to the state. Like that's what drives everything for her. Whereas in this one, she's like the perfect example of both, you know, because they're talking about, oh, if the officials of the empire could be more like you, you know, she she did her duty in fighting, but she also did her duty in coming back to her her father and, you know, taking back her feminine place. And, you know, it's just like really interesting how it's getting more and more to be like this idealized version of, of something rather than, um, you know, the Ballad of Milan, which they say is kind of like really a critique about the, the leadership and the warring kind of uh, lifestyle perpetuated by the, the leadership of the time. Yeah. So, yeah, I, th- I thought that was interesting. I want to bring up another thing. It's called A Poem Dedicated to the Mulan Temple by Du Mu. And this is actually like inscribed at a temple called like the the Mulan Temple or the Temple of Mulan on Mount Mulan, which is in Hubei province, which I would have no idea where Hubei province is, except for the fact that the capital city of Hubei province is Wuhan, which has been in the news quite a bit lately. It's like, again, we didn't plan this. No, or and this we, temple is like... we planned this in so many months ahead that, yeah. Yeah. I looked it up in Google Maps too, and it's like the temple, the location where this temple is, is like, you know, like a like a, an easy day's drive away from, from Wuhan, which is just like really strange that this happened to come up at this time. Yeah. But anyway, so I'm going to kind of just read the poem because again, it's only this four line poem, but there's some kind of interesting things about it. So it says, bending the bow in a campaign, Mulan acted as a man. In her dreams, she decorated her eyebrows just like before. Several times she thinks about returning home and pouring out the wine. She prayed at Fun... Funyandui. Anyway, she prayed at a shrine for the Ming princess. And it's like, in those four lines, it's all about not only, you know, her her acting as a man and then returning to this kind of like more feminine thing. It's like talks the whole time about how she's just longing to return back to that feminine life. And even the the reference she makes her praying for the Ming princess, that is a reference to Ming princess Wang Xiaojun, who acted as a peace emissary, who was married off for political reasons, you know, who was seen as doing the right thing again for the state and for her family by being married off and acting in a very traditionally feminine way. So it's just really interesting how this explores gender and gender roles, but in like kind of an opposite way to how we think of the, how the story of Mulan, like the Disney version that we've all been used to explores them, you know? Yeah. Because the, the movie Mulan that was made in America was very much made in a modern and Western ideas and context. Yeah. And, and so it's interesting to see how they, and like the poem that you just read about how it is talking about how like kind of the ideal woman is one who is fine being 
culturally feminine or whatever, but then doing what needs to be done, whatever that is. And like you said, I, whether it's being married off to keep peace between kingdoms and it might not be what she wants, but it is like what's being done or whether it's going to war to like keep your family alive. It just reminds me of like anytime you are making a decision, you have to think about what you value as a person Mm -hmm. and you can have lots of different values, but usually they outrank each other. Yeah. And so it's like you might they might value kind of cultural uh, femininity and like how they define that. But above that, they value protecting the family. Right. Or like protecting. And so it's like this illustrates. Yeah, we want people to be feminine. We want them to, you know, be happy putting on their makeup, putting on their silks and sitting weaving. But we also above that want them to be loyal to their family. Yeah. And you brought up a really good point, too, is like when someone is retelling or telling one of these fairy tales, it's going to say or whatever story, it's going to say so much more about the culture and the time that the storyteller lives in than it does about whatever the story is about. You know, even when you're in the, you know, 2020 telling a story about Mulan back in the whatever third, fourth century in China, like the choices that you make and what you emphasize or what you say are going to be the things that stand out to you based on the things that you think are important based on your values now. And you see that even in the history of this story, through China, just like the Disney movie says more about the United States in the 1990s than it says about anything about China today or in the past, you know? Yeah. Um, and this is just another example of that. This is taking the same story, telling it in ways it's like all the the general details are still there. I mean, not the generality of her going off and fighting as a man and then wanting to come back to her family life. It's like, it's the story's there, but it's focusing on something that was important to that author and that time in that culture. There's like a two more versions I'd want to talk about. We're not going to retell them because they're both longer, like much longer things. One is a play and the title translates to female Mulan joins the army, taking her father's place by Zhu Wei, which this guy kind of is like almost deserving of like a bonus episode or something. Probably not. But he was just like a really interesting character that doesn't really have much to do with the story. But but this was done in the 16th century. And it's kind of what they consider like the earliest dramatization as far as like a play or something like performative that was done. And this play is the thing that actually popularized Mulan's surname as being Hua or f- pronounced Fa in Cantonese, which means flower. Also interesting fun fact, Mulan means magnolia so it's like the magnolia flower and like the magnolia this is the chinese magnolia which is different from the magnolias that we have here like in the united states versus the southern united states and just watching the mulan movie today that tree that her dad is sitting at that is a chinese magnolia the symbol the you know the flower that's on the brush that she leaves behind as a symbol that I've done this on purpose to go off to war for you. That's the Chinese Magnolia. Wait, um, and doesn't he, is, doesn't, isn't there like a line where he says something like, 
that like you're the sweetest flower or something like yeah, that. Yeah, t- he's he's talking about how she's a late bloomer basically. He's like, see oh, that, right. that bud's not quite come out yet, but sometimes when they do, they're the most beautiful of all or whatever. Aww. Which and is just really interesting and it, because their last name is Flower. Yeah, their last name is her name is Magnolia Flower. She is literally named after the tree that he is talking about. The other interesting thing about this getting into gender roles is that that flower is like very deeply tied up into the idea of femininity. Like those flowers would often be in like wedding bouquets and things like that because it symbolizes like beauty and other, you know, traditionally very feminine virtues. Yeah. It shows that they were aware of like that the name was a flower name. Yeah. And it's like, you know, I downplayed in the, in the ballad, like supposedly the point was not about the gender stuff, but that's obviously a, a big part of it. I think we pointed out before too, like in in the song of Mulan talking about how it took it further. It's not just that it was her father that was supposed to go off to war, but it was he was old, he was sick, he was feeble, like he would not survive. In the Ballad of Mulan, it doesn't say anything like that. It just shows that she would rather do it instead of him. In this one, her father, in the play, this play, her father was like, had served in the imperial court. From a young age, she taught Mulan about you know, the liberal and martial arts. And it specifically says that she was 17 years old, which I thought was kind of just an interesting point. But like the song of Mulan, this one goes into a lot of detail talking about the change from female dress and clothing into, you know, the male soldier's clothing. Specifically, um, they talk about like how she unbound her feet, which is interesting because like... that is interesting. Like it, it's anachronistic to the story that it, he was telling because during yeah, the time it that it is anachronistic, but it's not, you know, it's but again, it's about his culture and his time. So he's telling this thing about this story that took place long ago before that was even a thing, before foot binding was a thing, before foot binding was a thing. I'm just stressing that that's what we're talking about just because I don't know if our listeners know right. what yeah, yeah, the yeah. foot binding was. Yeah, so it was like basically, you know, like I don't even know that much about it besides like just really bi- tightly binding the feet to make them really small. And that was during this time in China, the thing, like we talked about being a weaver was the thing in the Ballad of Mulan that signified that she was a woman. Like the foot binding is one of the things that is like that is something that really clearly sets a woman apart from being, you know, from being a man. For That's what sets her apart as a woman. So foot binding... Started, I just Googled it very quickly. Women started binding their feet. Um, it has a very long history to look more feminine, according to one what one leader thought was feminine. And but it would make it so that they were basically hobbled uh, because your, your body is supposed to grow up a, a particular way because of evolutionary reasons, so yeah. that you're. And if you restrict that growth and it starts to like bend the bones, it kind of hobbles you. But if you're seen, if you see that as like the most beautiful, but it apparently started in the 12th century. And so Mulan, the ballad of Mulan greatly predates. Yeah. But you're, but it makes sense that in this plays from the 16th century, right? That you're referring right, to. Yeah. Yeah. So it makes sense that that was what was going on. Yeah. And another thing uh, or that, that, that he would, uh, kind of equate that, but yeah, it would end up being kind of right. The thing for him that's deg- uh, you know signifies her as being feminine is the foot binding. And the other thing that's interesting too is like throughout the throughout the whole play, she, you know, she has to unbind her feet so that she can do the things that she needs to do in the military. And she's worrying throughout the play if she'll be able to rebind her feet so that when she returns, she'll be you know 
quote unquote suitable for marriage. Yeah. And at the end of the play, she does. She goes home, she rebinds her feet, and she enters into an arranged marriage. A thing that I thought was super interesting about this, it was kind of like a little side note in the book that I was reading, but they're talking about how the way that theater was done at the time, the type of performance that this would have been, the actor playing the part of Mulan would have been a man playing Mulan, going from you know That's dressing as a so woman to a man back fascinating. to a woman. Yeah, It just reminds me of like Peter Pan. That like yeah. the play Peter Pan, Peter uh-huh. Pan would be played by a woman, like a grown yeah. woman. Yeah. But and then also there is like a long history, even in like European theater of uh, men playing all the parts, even right. in like right. Shakespeare's. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I was going to say, too. <laughs> so I, just, I thought that was interesting. That is interesting. <laughs> you uh, were correct fun, to think that that was interesting. a fun detail. Um, the last one we're going to talk about is a book, I believe. And it's called The Legend of an Extraordinary Girl Who is Loyal, Filial, Courageous, and Illustrious. That's a really short title. (laughs) Almost, you know, the epitome of taking Mulan and giving her like that legendary ideal woman status. This one I want to include for all our fans of uh, Jean-Baptiste Basile because Um, this one is the most graphic and crazy of them all. But uh, this was written in like the 1830s. So it's a lot more modern. I mean, this is like Brothers Grimm time period, which yeah. that's in, in this podcast. That's what I use as my like, is it how much before or after the Brothers Grimm did this happen? <laughs> I don't know how that became my baseline, but I no, just but know for is, some reason 1830s. Well, because well, it is funny because like sometimes people think of like fairy tale gathering or like story gathering as beginning with the Grimm's brothers as if like they invented the art yeah. of it. And so it is funny that it's like, we keep being like, this predates them by thousands of years. <laughs> yeah. Much like the printing press, much like gunpowder, much like a lot of things. The Chinese were doing it way before us, you know, cause they were <laughs> recording the Ballad of Mulan in the fifth and sixth century. So, yeah. So this one, the kind of key points I'll hit on was, yeah, she dresses a man to do all that stuff. But one of the things that was interesting, I think, because it comes into play in the Disney movie, is that this version goes into the fact that she's receiving instructions from the gods that are directly leading to their military success. And as a result of that, she's made a general. And when her gender's revealed, she's actually like, oh, you know, people are like, oh, you're actually a woman? Okay, well, um, instead of you being a general, we're going to make you a princess and basically adopt you into the royal family. And it's like, oh, okay. Uh, 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 hmm. So, but at some point, like the emperor starts hearing these like salacious rumors about Mulan and thinks that because, you know, she was such a great military leader and all this stuff. And now she's kind of part of the royal family that he's going to be, dis- she's going to be disloyal to him. And she's going to, you know, try to take power away from him. And so she sends letters back to him saying like, no, no, I'm loyal to you. I'm loyal to you. But he doesn't believe it. So in the end, she stabs herself through the chest with a sword, pulls it down and exposes her heart as a true show of loyalty to the emperor, killing herself so she can eliminate herself as a threat to him and his rule. Mm, I hate that. Yeah. And it's like... <laughs> I understand, but I... I understand, though, where they're coming from of that that self-sacrifice yeah. for the like for the country, for the leaders, for I understand yeah. where it's coming from. 
And it, it what I'm, I guess what I'm saying is it, yeah, it doesn't resonate with me. But, doesn't resonate with you. But I, I but understand a, where it came from. Yeah, and this is why I wanted to bring this one up is because it shows how much it can change throughout time. Because like the very first one we read, the Bowden Mulan, the whole point of it was that it's a critique of the Khan and the warring and all that stuff. And she rejects his offer and she goes home to be with her family. In this one, you know, the point is not that she is doing it for her family, or at least from the summary that I know, because again, I'm going to be honest and I didn't read the whole thing, but you know, like she's at the very end, she's killing herself as a show of loyalty to the emperor. It's like, it's so the opposite of yeah the point of the very first story that we told, but it's still about the same character. And it's just, that's so fascinating to me. Yeah. And it goes back to just kind of what we're doing, like with the podcast of showing that like, how these stories morph and change like through time or the versions that we have have gone through this long process of like cultural changes. Yeah. And so it's interesting because while a lot of the focus, cause when we did Cinderella, when we did sleeping beauty and kind of showed those um, time period changes and stuff, you know, we were focusing in Europe and we're showing like that same situation applies in a different place in the world that like in Asia, it's the exact same thing of the stories are, are changed to serve a purpose. That's like the point of storytelling is to, uh, I like either teach something, explain something, or at the very least it reflects your current situation. Yeah, for sure. And that's, it's so cool. That's again, it's one of the things I do love about these fairy tales and how they're so useful for retelling and for adaptation. You can do a lot of really interesting things with them. One of the things I came along in this uh, research and you actually, because you read a chapter of the same awesome book, Mulan's legend and legacy in China and the United States that I actually didn't read and you will know more about it, but they talked about how, um, you know, kind of more modernly, like in the 19th, in the 20th, 21st century, this story is often used, the story of Mulan is often used by Chinese Americans to kind of explain the feeling that they feel of being torn between these two worlds of China and their, the culture in the United States, which is something like, I was just listening to um, a podcast about, what's that movie? The Farewell, which talks a lot about that. You know, the main character of that is a Chinese American and how, you know, in America she's seen as Chinese and in China she's seen as an American and, you know, crazy rich Asians. It has like a really big theme. It's like, that's something that's still going on today. And and supposedly a lot of, I don't know a lot, but you know, some Chinese Americans will use this story as a way to express that feeling that they have. Yeah. Of being not quite one thing, not quite another, of being like the split loyalty. Yeah. Where it's kind of like they're, their family might want them to be one thing, but then also the country where they're currently living wants them to be a different thing. And at what point are they loyal to their families? At what point are they loyal to the culture that they're living in? Do they have to pick one or the other? Can it be something in between? Can they make a culture that's entirely new? And where they're not picking one or the other. And it's funny because I'm the I'm the inverse of this. Right. Because, and so it's funny because I'm like, there are ways where I'm like, oh, I relate. But then there are other ways where I don't. Because I, 
was a an American living in Thailand. And so there are a lot of Thai things and Thai culture that resonate with me and that I love, but I also can't be loyal to Thailand now that I'm back in the U.S. or even like at home. Yeah. But so sometimes when I'm in the U.S. and someone will be like, oh, I'm Chinese American. I grew up like in America. I don't know. And sometimes people introduce us to each other thinking like that we'll be BFFs because we we totally <laughs> understand each other. I'm like, no, no, no. We're kind of we do understand each other. But, yeah, but we're also like opposite. <laughs> Not not racially opposite, but like our situations are different because experiences. Yeah, yeah. Because I'm like I didn't. Yeah, it's we're different. They grew up in a house of Asians. I grew up in a house of American culture. But then also I moved back to American culture. Yeah, but Chinese Americans haven't moved back to China. If that makes sense. Yeah, because they are Chinese Americans are trying to make a culture here or understand their cultural identity here and so it's interesting that they can use stories from from their family culture that they're hearing from their families Mm -hmm. and they kind of can use them as a strength to fight against what they might be hearing are stereotypes that like white people in america have about them yeah. And that's another interesting thing about the story of Mulan. The Western stereotype of Asian women, especially, is they are one of two things. They are either supposed to be like a meek, docile, submissive type of woman, or they're supposed to be this like kind of exotic, fetishized type Mm -hmm. of a woman and that's uh, like unfortunately the stereotypes that have been kind of like in a in the western culture like put upon asian women's bodies that like you have to be one of these two things and the amazing thing about mulan is that she is not either one of those things yeah and so chinese american women can latch on to this story that they might be familiar with, especially if their parents like have been telling them stories that they had grown up with. They can see this character and say, I don't have to be weak, submissive, docile, nor do I have to be some like exotic fetishized like person. I can be someone who is strong and outspoken, somebody who is like, no, I'm, I do what I want. Not I do what I want, but in a sense of like, yeah, if I want to protect my family, I'm going to go out and do it. If I want to sit home and weave, I'll sit home and weave. Like, don't put your expectations on me. I can do many things just like this one character. Yeah. And it's interesting. Um, in the same book that I read a lot of, a lot of, <laughs> I'm going to read the whole thing um, at some point because it was just so good. But talked about how like, you know, the when the movie came out, there was a there was like kind of like mixed reception, like in China. There were lots of people that loved it, uh, like critics, Chinese movie critics and people. But there were a lot of people that didn't like it because it was so different from their story. And there's, you know, a lot of people in the United States that talk about how like, 
you know, it's irresponsible because it's like taking the, you know, taking Chinese culture and making it like for show. It's like, it's not truly representing Chinese culture. No. They're just taking this story and completely Americanizing it and using like signs of Chinese culture. And, you know, they did a lot to kind of like when rewatching the movie today after doing all this research, you see a lot of things where you can see how they did a lot of research and did stuff and they kind of, you know, at least nod the head to the original story or to, you know, Chinese culture. Like for example, in the lots of the versions, Mulan has a younger brother. And so in the Disney movie, she doesn't have any siblings, but she does have a dog named little brother. (laughs) And like the horse, her horse's name is Khan, like the Khan that she was serving in the ballad of Mulan and stuff like that. So, I mean, I don't know. It's, it's complicated, but again, going back to the fact, it's like, when I watch a Disney movie, no matter what culture that's being shown, no matter what's going on, I know that it's talking about America and yeah. now more than anything else. And, you know, there's lots of great positives to the, you know, sharing stories from other cultures and especially things like folk tales and fairy tales. Like there's been so many different versions along the way that it's like, this is just another version and it may not speak to you. And that's okay, but it really speaks to you. I was like, it's again, it's my favorite movie. And I'm really looking forward to seeing what they do now in 2020, you know, yes. like 20 years later yes. um, in the new version that comes out, hopefully sometime soon. Yeah, because what, what I am I'm finding really interesting, because I know there were a lot of people that were upset when they found out that they were taking out the music. Yeah. That they were like, this isn't going to be a musical one. We're not going to have Mushu. I think there were other things that they had specifically said were going to be like changed and people were upset. But for the cartoon, especially in the 90s, I'm like, it made sense to have a funny like sidekick like Mushu. Yeah. Even though listening to it now, who was that voiced by? Eddie Murphy. Yeah. I'm like, Eddie Murphy, what is he doing in like China? Like, and he's like, he's just being Eddie Murphy. It's like, yeah, he's just like Eddie Murphy, like on the side, like throughout, which Eddie Murphy's hilarious. But again, like, it doesn't, it like takes it out of China and like makes it more about like what Americans love, like laughing about. Yeah. And also, yeah, maybe by taking out some of the songs, we'll also be able to. I don't know, see a little bit more mature and nuanced movement through Mulan's journey instead of it just being about that gender dynamic or about her like trying to find who I really am. Maybe they'll move back toward what this story was more about that was less about her internal journey of discovering what kind of person she was and yeah. back to she knows what kind of person she is and she's doing this for her family because that's what she values. Yeah, there's a lot of great opportunities. And as soon as Disney started like remaking all their movies in live action versions, I had no interest in like basically any of them. But I was like, they need to do Mulan because that will make such an awesome live action movie. But I also really wish they would have like a uh, like R rated version that has like all the blood and gore of like fighting and battle. <laughs> I... I have not seen any of the live action remakes that Disney has done, but I really badly wanted to see this one. And I was planning on going out and like seeing it in theater, but yeah. Yeah. No, especially when I've been seeing like the trailers for it, 
And you can just see it's going to be very tonally different yeah. from the cartoon. And so I feel like Mushu would be really, really out of place. <laughs> Eddie Murphy does. <laughs> like, why is this happening? Although Eddie Murphy may be making a comeback. So we well, may see him in other places. Yeah. So just to go back to it, you know, like, the journey I've been on through this process is like, I was excited to do this podcast because I love like Mulan is my favorite Disney movie. And, you know, I don't even know what it is about it that I like so much. I mean, it is really fun. It's really funny. I think Mulan is a great character. I think it's a good story. And, you know, it just really resonated with me. So I was really excited to learn more and explore that. But what I ended up learning the most, I think was just how cool it is that these stories have a life of their own like we've talked about so much with other folk tales and fairy tales in other cultures around the world is that you know the quote unquote original is one thing and it iterates and it evolves with whoever's telling it and you know the story of Mulan is the exact same way the core elements are all there in all these different versions but the angle that people approach them with you know, both in the similar culture there in China and when it gets into another culture like here in the United States and we're telling it in our own way. Just the fact that, again, like the whole point of this podcast, we can learn so much about people of certain times and certain places based on what they found important in the stories that they were telling, just like we can from stories that are told today, same as we can stories that were told in 5th and 6th century China, same as we can do with stories that were, you know, Aesop's fables from 3000 BC in Greece. You know, it's just, it's just really, really, really cool. So I have an even greater appreciation of that going through this whole process. Thank you for listening to The Fairy Tellers. If you are enjoying what we're doing, please support us by leaving us a review or share us with your friends. Special thanks to Andrew Forey for our music and Clarice Inch for our artwork. This episode contains additional music from Kevin McLeod at Incompetech Music. Check him out at Incompetech.com. If you are a dreamer, come in. If you are a dreamer, a wisher, a liar, a hoper, a prayer, a magic bean buyer. If you're a pretender, come sit by my fire, for we have some flax golden tails to spin. Come in, come in. Invitation by Shel Silverstein. Greatly written? Yes. Is that even proper English? That was not a greatly written sentence that I just spoke. <laughs>